Good evening, my name is Paul Holden Grabend. I'm the director of public programs here, thankfully now called live from the New York Public Library. It used to be called PEP, which sounds more like something you would take if you have digestive problems. Uh, I will be extremely brief tonight because we have another event which follows immediately after, which I know many of you want to attend on revolution. The revolution tonight starts at the New York Public Library at 8 p.m. <laughs> tonight we have an event on multiculturalism with two, of, uh, two very dear friends of mine, Pascal Bruckner, who came here about six months ago to debate the notion of vulgarity, a very long book that could be, with Adam Gopnik, and uh, Richard Rodriguez, who I myself have interviewed and who, have, who, who came to LACMA, to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, where I was previously, where he quite brilliantly interviewed himself. Hmm his alter ego, or his altered ego, as we used to say. <laughs> this event tonight is sponsored in part by Sign and Sight, by the German Federal Foundation, and of course by Penn, and I would most warmly like to thank Mike Roberts, Esther Allen, and of course also Salman Rushdie, who is the president and will be the president until Sunday when he has a conversation with Amatya Sen, um, here at the library, and then he will turn over his presidency to the new president of Penn, Ren Charnow. And now it gives me great pleasure to have Anthony appear, uh, introduce the various members of this uh, panel, and I think the conversation itself will last, uh, I'm always asked how long these things should last, it will last about as long as a psychoanalytical session, about 50 minutes or 55 <laughs> minutes or 60 minutes if your analyst is general, generous, and then um, uh, we will turn it over to questions which will be about 22 minutes long. Thank you very much. Um, thanks very much, Paul. I'm Anthony Appier, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here to this panel on, uh, essentially on multiculturalism in a trans Atlantic perspective, uh, which, as Paul has mentioned, is part of a wider Penn International Festival that's taking place here in New York at the moment. And as a member of that host center, the Penn American Center, I'm delighted to be able to welcome this wonderful panel uh, uh, to, to, the, to this, uh, the New York Public Library this evening. Um, I'm particularly glad that we have with us here a group of writers from several countries, including our own who've written deeply and thoughtfully about our topic, who've explored it in novels, in print and broadcast journalism, uh, uh, and essays, and then from uh, the Nouvelle Observateur to National Public Radio, and in their writing as scholars. And our aim is to have a conversation about the different ways in which questions of the diversity of religious, ethnic, racial, and national identity are thought about in the places that each of us knows best. Uh, how do we think about multiculturalism and toleration in everything from speech and dress to religion and so on? How should we think about these things? How do we think about them? Um, I did want to say something just by way of background before introducing the panel. Uh, and just to remind you of some of what seemed to me the facts that we ought to have uh, before us uh, as we um, uh, as we enter this discussion. Um, first, uh, in Europe now, there is, as you all know, a significant Muslim population, uh, which is an, a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, in, in France, which has a population of just over 60 million people, there are perhaps um, 
five million uh, people are Muslims uh, today. Though, of course, it's rather hard to define a Muslim, just as it's hard to define a Christian or a Jew, and so it's rather hard to come up with, uh, with numbers. Uh, I found a poll that said that only 70% of the people identified as Muslims in France uh, observe Ramadan, which you might think was a rather important thing for a Muslim to do. So we should be careful when we use these numbers to think about what they mean. In Germany, uh, again, uh, Germany, as you know, has a population slightly over 80 million, uh, about 3.2 million Muslims, of whom uh, 2.5 million, 2.6 million are of Turkish origin. Um, so to put it another way, the populations of French and German Muslims outnumber the people of Libya. Uh, or to put it yet another way, Berlin is now the third largest Turkish city in the world. Uh, in the United States, of course, uh, the relevant comparison is not, I think, one that would occur to most of us. We don't think of Islam as a great challenge uh, to uh, multiculturalism or to diversity or to pluralism in the United States. Um, again, it's rather hard to count, but people say that they're between 0.4% and sort of 2.5% of the population at the top end of Muslims in the United States. But we do, of course, have issues that are at least in some respect analogous, issues that arise in part out of migration, because we now have, again, it's rather hard to define these things, but something like 40 million people who are thought of by somebody as Hispanic in the United States, many of whom, of course, are migrants from Latin America, uh, many of whom uh, speak at home uh, 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 Spanish uh, and not English, though uh, very few of them don't uh, start learning English pretty fast uh, once they settle here. Then that's 13 or 14 percent of our population. So, um, I, I'm, as I say, these seem to be things we ought to bear in mind in thinking about how we might make these comparisons across the Atlantic, and we have people who are ideally placed to help us do it here. I wanted to, to say before we, I just actually introduced the three speakers that um, uh, one of our sponsors tonight is the uh, German-based uh, website, Sign and, uh, it's not Sign und Zeit, it's signandsight.com, so that's English, S-I-G-N-A-N-D-S-I-G-H-T.com. Uh, but this is a German website whose idea is that if uh, people in Europe are to participate fully in the global dialogue, they're going to have to do so first through, through the web, and second, they're going to have to admit that English is an extremely important language. And so what uh, Zion and Zeit does is to make available, um, uh, to translate, essentially, German interventions uh, for uh, use by people in the world of the web, uh, in the global conversation. And uh, over there on, on the side, uh, there are several um, essays and pieces from Zion and Zeit, which if you're interested in it, I think you you might find it interesting to pick up and take away with you. So, who have we got with us to talk about these important questions? Uh, on my uh, far right, though he won't like me putting it that way, uh, <laughs> is, is Pascal Bruckner, uh, who is, uh, of course, a um, well-known French writer, writer intellectual, uh, nouveau philosophe. Um, Born, uh, it says here when he was born, but I don't think we need to go into that. In 1994, <laughs> uh, his novel A Bitter Moon was made into a Roman Polanski film. And uh, among his other many works are 
um, um, uh, the, a very famous work, The Tears of the White Man, Compassion is Contempt, about, which is um, a reflection on um, the sentimentality, I would say, of many uh, so-called progressive attitudes to the so-called third world, uh, and a more, a more recently, The Temptation of Innocence, uh, Living in the Age of Entitlement. Um, nearer to me in, uh, uh, he, he may like it, I don't know, being described as being on my near right, <laughs> Richard Rodriguez, uh, who's, uh, of course, our American contributor to this panel, uh, grew up in San Francisco, the author of a wonderful uh, series of memoirs, including Hung Hunger of Memory and Days of Obligation. Um, he's a contributing editor of Harper's, a commentator on uh, the News Hour with Jim Lehrer, and his most recent book is uh, Brown, The Last Discovery of America. On my left here, uh, and I'll continue not to ask you not to interpret these in, in any way uh, political in their significance, these locations, is uh, Necla Kelek, who, who was born in Turkey um, about a little bit after me, if you want to know when, uh, though I wasn't born in Turkey. Uh, moved to Germany at the age of 10, is a German citizen now. Uh, her books include uh, uh, Fremde Braut, The Foreign Bride, which is about arranged and forced marriages of Turkish migrants in Germany, and uh, Die Verloren und Söhne, The Lost Sons, which is about the socialization and the faith of young uh, Turkish Muslim men in, uh, in, uh, in Germany. Uh, she's a sociologist by, uh, and, and writer, uh, and we're very glad to have her here. Uh, she'll be speaking in German, so we're delighted to have with us um, a very able interpreter who, who will um, uh, tr translate her words. So what I asked everybody to do is to, to begin by having something to say for a few minutes about how they, these questions strike them. And I asked Nechla if she'd be willing to start for us. Uh, and so we'll begin with just short uh, discussions by each of the panelists and then uh, move into a conversation. So uh, Nechla Kelly, Kaya. Ich möchte gerne über Multikulturalismus und Toleranz am Beispiel der türkisch-muslimischen Migranten, die seit 40 Jahren ungefähr in Deutschland leben, sprechen. I would like to talk about multiculturalism and tolerance um, in the case of the Turkish migrants that live in Germany for the last 40 years. Vor 40 Jahren begann ein, eine äh, Reise aus der Türkei, aus einer säkularen Türkei, die demokratisch war, äh, auf dem Weg nach Deutschland, und zwar für eine kurze Zeit. 40 years ago, a journey started. It was a um, secular journey from a secular Turkey and a democratic Turkey um, to Germany. Äh, es gab sogar Frauen, die alleine gereist sind, ohne ihre Familien nach Deutschland. Sie trugen kein Kopftuch. Sie waren vielleicht religiös, kulturell religiös, aber sie waren keine praktizierenden Muslime. Es gab sogar, there were also women that, that um, came on their own and um, there were non-practicing uh, Muslims and they were able to come to Germany and take this journey. Aus der eine kurze Zeit des Bleibens ist eine längere Zeit geworden. Viele sind dort geblieben. Das heißt, mittlerweile sprechen wir von eine Zeit von 40 Jahren Migration. Out of this shorter stay, a much longer kind of um, um, a longer stay emerged, and um, so now we are at 40 years, and people are still there. 
Und wenn wir heute ein Resümee ziehen oder ich als Soziologin ein Resümee ziehe, dann sage ich, dass mittlerweile die 2,6 Millionen Türken, muslimischem Fundament, nicht in Deutschland angekommen ist. Ich behaupte, dass die Integration in Deutschland gescheitert ist. So my claim is that um, despite this 40-year-long uh, journey, that the Turkish migrants, uh, the mu Muslim Turkish migrants, have not um, arrived actually in Germany, that they have not become integrated into German culture. Obwohl die ersten äh, auf dem Weg in die Moderne sich machten, das heißt, in der Moderne heißt, dass der, der einzelne Mensch für sich selbst verantwortlich ist und für, ist und für seine Familie, sind, ist heute aus diesen kleinen Familien größere Clans in Deutschland geworden. It was a journey into modernity and from, from an outside of a smaller family, um, but as they arrived in Germany, they became much bigger clans. Mit, ihren, äh, mit der Zusammenführung der Familien aus ihren, äh, die meisten sind ländlich strukturiert, haben sie auch ihre traditionelle muslimische Religion mitgebracht. So the gathering together of these families um, out of mostly rural parts and a rural background, um, from there they've also brought together their traditional Muslim beliefs. Sie leben heute in Deutschland in bestimmten Stadtteilen, äh, in einer Parallelwelt ihre, ihren Tradition, traditionellen Islam und sie werden unterstützt von einem weltweit mittlerweile entstandenen und sich immer weiter entwickelnden Islam. So they live in um, particular segregated, well, in particular areas of, in German cities and, um, and collectively together and um, they um, have they live in a sort of parallel world to the Germans and they have um, they've been supported by a wider Islam. Sie haben sicherlich recht, es gibt bestimmt unterschiedliche Arten äh, des Islam und unterschiedliche Art des Lebens des Islam, aber ein Punkt verbindet sie überall auf der Welt. Um, you're right that there are different forms of Islam and different forms of religious expression, but at the same time um, there's one point that ties them all together. Und zwar die Situation der muslimischen Frau. Sie können an der Situation der Frauen, in der Art und Weise, wie sie ihr Kopftuch trägt, ihr Chado trägt, ihr Jihab trägt, können sie den Fundamentalismus des Islam an den Familien erkennen. And that point is um, the Muslim woman. And in the way in which women wear their scarves, their jihad, their burda, that's the way in which you can recognize um, Islamic fundamentalism that exists. Die republikanische türkische Frau, die in der Öffentlichkeit ihren festen Platz hatte, ist heute im Haus, wenn sie raus muss in die Öffentlichkeit, hat sie ein Kopftuch zu tragen oder einen äh, Chado zu tragen. The republican Turkish woman that used to exist has now been confined to um, the kitchen and the home. And um, if she does go outside, um, then she has to um, wear a scarf or uh, a burqa. Yeah. Uh, das Kopftuch und auch dieser schwarze Chador ist das Kopftuch der organisierten politischen Islam. Um, the scarf and the chador, the black chador, are um, um, the sign for the organized um, Islam. Ohne die verschleierte Frau wäre ein Mann, ein muslimischer Mann, kein gläubiger Mann. Wenn er im Hatsch war, 
und ein gläubiger Muslim geworden ist, hat er seine Frauen zu verschließen. Um, without the veiled woman, um, the Muslim man is not Muslim or not part of Islam. So if he has gone to, if he, he has gone to the Hajj, which is the journey to Mecca, right? Die Frau hat ein eigenes Daseinsberechtigung auf der Welt nicht. Sie ist ein Teil des Mannes. Sie muss das tun, was er möchte. Das ist das Prinzip dieser Religion. She does not have her own independent existence. She only exists through her husband. And um, that's the basis of the religion. Und in der Moderne in Deutschland ist es so, dass die Familien kleine Bräute möglichst zwischen 14 und 18 Jahre alt für ihre Söhne holen, weil die am besten sich dort in dieser offenen Gesellschaft sich verschleiern und ihren Söhnen sich anpassen. Um, for the Turkish um, culture in Germany, they um, try to get very young brides between 14 and 18, so that they will um, be particularly obedient to their husbands and wear the veil and will be very educated to that kind of culture from a very early age. Und mit diesen importierten Bräuten ist es unmöglich, in der Moderne anzukommen. Für mich ist Moderne Individualität und das Recht auf selbstbestimmtes Leben. Das heißt, wann ich heirate, wen ich heirate und ob ich überhaupt heirate. Und diese Möglichkeit wird diesen Kindern nicht gegeben. These are imported brides and with, with these imported brides there is no way of arriving into a modern culture in Germany with the, with the, for the Turkish population. And um, so they, they have no um, chance of deciding when, who, or how, or whether they want to get married at all. So, so like this, a modern existence is just not possible for women. Um, thank you very much, and we'll, we'll get back to trying to prepare these, these, these uh, discussions in a minute, but uh, Pascal. Yes, uh, I think tonight we're going to focus on Islam, but just before I would like to say a few uh, words about German writer, as we have uh, German friends on this panel, is uh, Thomas Mann. In 1916, Thomas Mann um, writes a, a journal, a diary about war, and uh, at that time, he's, he defends German culture against French civiliz civilization. And he thinks that German culture uh, applies to the soul, is deeply rooted into the German uh, soil, while what the French call civilization is in fact something totally mechanical, soulless, and uh, which only um, um, refers to the cold reason. And so that's the opinion of Thomas Mann in, in World War I, where he's, he's um, quite opposed to democracy and to the values of the Allies. Uh, almost 30 years after, uh, Thomas Mann exi is exiled in the States. He has taken US nationality. And uh, in May 1945, he uh, gives a speech at the Library of Congress in Washington. And of course, Thomas Mann is a long-term open of, of Nazism. Of, so you could think that he has changed his mind and in fact, in front of the member of Congress and in front of a member of the US government, he tries to give his own explanation of Nazism. And in fact, his, his, his explanation is exactly the, the reverse of what he thought 25 years ago. It's still 
the fault of the German culture, which was good in 1916, has become bad in 1945, which was positive 25 years before, has become negative after. And then Thomas Mann shows a deep cultural pessimism, and he thinks that Nazism, Nazism is a perversion of German interiority, a kind of pathology of German romanticism. But in fact, he hasn't really changed his point of view on politics and Germany, since culture, as opposed to civilization, still remains his main guideline. And talking about multiculturalism is in fact um, is, is in fact a kind of revenge of the Romantic times. L let us remember that Romanticism was born in a reaction against the Enlightenment. What did the Enlightenment philosophers say? They said, culture, languages, races, religion do not really matter. What matters is the universal man, the abstract man, who can, through uh, his own reason and intelligence, rise himself above his uh, origin, above his determinations. And um, the only evils that the Enlightenment wanted to fight were uh, ignorance, superstition, and fanaticism. Against that trend, the, 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 the romantics, first French, and then Germans and the English protested that man in himself does not exist. We have one very famous uh, reactionary philosopher in France called Joseph de Mest, and he said, I never met a man. I don't know what a man is, but I met Englishmen, I met German men, I met Spanish men, but man as such does not exist. And that's, wh that's why the Romantic movement is the movement that started as a national uprising in all Europe. And of course the Romantics, they favor not the abstract human being, but they favor the tradition, the origins, the, the race, and uh, they think that um, the human being does not exist if he's not deeply rooted in a past and in a culture. And I think the, 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 the issue that we were discussing tonight is exactly this one. What do we mean by culture? Do we have to use culture in, in singular or in plural? Is culture um, a way to open myself to the outside world? In which way, of course, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite positive. Or on the contrary, is culture a kind of jail in which I'm locked uh, from the first day of my life. And uh, of course, I, I, um, I rejoin what uh, Ms. Kalex just said before. If you consider that culture is like your second skin, something that you can never read of, so the fact that you were born Christian or Jew or Muslim remains on you during all your life. You will be never able to get rid of that second skin, and culture is more like a like a prison than like a window. Or on the contrary, could we consider culture as something that helps me to get out of myself? And if culture is something that helps me to get out of myself, we could compare it to like a door which is neither closed nor open. And so maybe the value we should uh, emphasize is porousness. 
you know, and we all communicate with, uh, we, with the world through a language, through a uh, nationality. But of course, if we consider that our uh, um, uh, culture, if, uh, that our roots are an absolute, then it's impossible to speak with, with, with the other, other, other men. And so the map of the world will not be that of a salad bowl or of a, of, or of a melting pot. It will be like a mosaic where each piece has to be separated from the other. And I think this is what, what is at stake in the discussion about multiculturalism. Thanks very much. Um, it's my impression that multiculturalism comes into the United States from the north and so therefore is to be suspect um, illegally across the Canadian border and it was um, <laughs> it was uh, it was invented by Pierre Elliott Trudeau and so that to speak of it as I do tonight is to already acknowledge uh, that I am a child of Trudeau um, it is uh, honorable as a as a Canadian idea, all, all Canadian ideas are honorable. Um, it, is, it is, however, not very erotic as an idea. Um, Canadians are not famous for their eroticism. <laughs> it, it posits the, um, the dignity and the, the, the specialness of individuals and individual communities. Um, by comparison, there is another ideology, another philosophy another way of understanding civic life that is pushing up, but here from the South. And that is the idea in Mexican Spanish of the mestizaje. In the 16th century, the Indian and the Spanish uh, conquistador met in Mexico. His name was Antonio Banderas. <laughs> Her name was uh, Marina La Malinche. Uh, they, uh, it is not clear the nature of their eroticism to this day. Um, it is possible that, as the, the male version has had it, that he raped her. But there is a sizable uh, opinion among uh, feminists now in Mexico uh, that, in fact, uh, she had designs on him. And that, uh, rather like Pocahontas here in the United States, she begins a, a, a sexual drama uh, that the male, the male history is unable to, to compete with. Nonetheless, by the 18th century, the majority population of Mexico was a mixed race. It was neither pure Spanish nor pure European. It was mestizo. The Mexican becomes, in that sense, the, the first modern people of the hemisphere. There is, in the United States, where the preference has been into this century uh, to describe the country in, as white and black without color. Um, there has been this reputation of the Mexican in our presence as dangerous to the, 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 the traditional understandings of our society as in some way dirty. The, the adjective dirty applies to the Mexican probably more than any other as a pejorative adjective, dirty Mexican. And the other quality of the Mexican I think that, that follows um, is that he or she violates straight lines. Um, Mexicans are unable to stay contained within borders. Um, they keep slipping across borders. There is, in fact, a, an illegality that attaches to the Mexican in the United States. Um, partly, I think, it is a true reflection of the fact that uh, Mexico is a deeply cynical culture. It is a culture formed by a Catholicism that accepts uh, the power and the inevitability of original sin, of failure, 
and therefore tolerates corruption with some ease. Um, the United States is a, is a Protestant culture that imagines itself to be innocent and pure. So when you get these two cultures living side by side, the result is a city like Tijuana, Mexico, which for generations provided the, the pure American with all those impure pleasures uh, that were available after dark. When boxing was illegal on the American side, boxing was available in Mexico. When gambling was illegal on the American side, gambling was possible in Mexico. When booze was illegal on the American side, booze was available in Mexico. And of course, when the whore was unavailable in the, on, in the American side, she was more than willing in Mexico. The relationship continued in the field of labor, uh, less sexual than, than routine, eight to five. Since about the 1920s, Americans have hired Mexican illegal workers in this country. There has been a migration back and forth of workers. Uh, there was also deportation in the 1930s during the Depression years, and then in the 1940s with the war years, the return of the Mexican laborer. And as this migration continued, the Mexican population in the United States has grown uh, with native-born children who are more American than they are Mexican. The US uh, tends to see this invasion now, I think, as a, an intrusion into our civic life, as an intrusion of illegality into our, our society. But typically, there is no suggestion in any of this nativism that you hear today uh, that, uh, that, that uh, coincidental with the Mexicanization of, Los, of New York is the Americanization of Mexico City. It is possible for me to take you to the Pyramid of the Sun, not too many miles outside of Mexico City, the pyramid that predates the Aztecs by several centuries. If we are careful and walk down the steps of the Pyramid of the Sun, you must be careful because the Indians had very small feet, and you mustn't trip because we have a journey to take of several hundred yards. In that direction, beyond the Pyramid of the Sun is a Walmart. <laughs> Richard Nixon invented Hispanics in 1972, so as a as a son of Trudeau, but also as a son of Nixon, I, I should accept the fact that I'm doomed to be Hispanic. Uh, but I would also propose to you tonight that you look at the people who are coming into the country from the South. They do not look like Spaniards. They don't look really <laughs> like people who have too much Spanish blood in them. They look like Indians, most of them, many of them, many of us, making your hotel beds walking down Fifth Avenue, speaking Spanish, the conquistador's tongue, his triumph. But in the American scheme of things, we don't know what to make of that fact or that possibility because we uh, have decided that the Indian is dead or the Indian disappeared to a gambling casino in upstate <laughs> New York. It is not possible that there are millions of Indians coming this way, that we are in the presence of one of the great Indian migrations in the New World. It is nowhere written in our history book. There are now 38 million Hispanics, children of Nixon in the United States. By official count, there are 12, 10 to 12 million illegals in the United States. The majority, 85% of them from Mexico. Recently, there were demonstrations, which I saw in cities like Chicago, New York, Dallas, Salt Lake City, 
I missed the one here in New York. I said to various people that I didn't think that I, what I was watching was a demonstration in a political sense. I was watching a family reunion. Hmm. But Mexican-Americans have been listening now for some time to this nativism on talk radio, on 24-hour television, this complaint against the Mexican as taking, never giving, this complaint of the burden of Mexico on us, this, this suggestion that the, the country would be better off if we sent them all away. And I thought to myself, before these demonstrations began, I thought to myself we were watching the possible Arabization of Mexican-American young people in Chicago and North Carolina. That they were listening to something said about their parents that no other children were listening to, and that is that their parents were criminal and their parents should be sent away. And I thought what I saw at these parades, particularly in, in Los Angeles, is some family expression, some insistence that the illegal immigrant now is married into the civic life, the family life of the United States, for there were children and in-laws and uncles and cousins. There was a, the phalanx at the beginning of, of the pr procession of women with baby carriages. And I thought to myself, this does not look like a political demonstration to me. This looks like a meeting of the Klan. One prediction. I predict, and after all of this talk, despite all of this talk, beyond all of this talk of multiculturalism, I predict that the United States is slowly inching its way to the discovery that it exists within the hemisphere, hmm. that Americans exist within the Americas. An astonishing idea. We are east-west people. We take our bearings from Europe. We find our settlement on the eastern coast of America, the first chapter. And the consequent chapters thereafter move us ever west. We are not a north-south people. There are now 38 million people in the United States, American citizens, who refer to themselves, who refer to you, who refer to this place as El Norte. One, one more point, and without going over my allotted space. The deeply troubling issue with the Mexican, quite different from the Arab in Paris or Amsterdam or Copenhagen, is that the Mexican is, 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 is returning to a land that Mexico once owned. In the 1850s, the originating, the founding culture of large portions of this country was Mexico, the northern end of the Spanish Empire. It is written on the land, San Antonio, Los Angeles. It is written on the description of the land, Arroyo, Mesa, Rio. There is a suggestion with this illegal migration uh, that something is coming back that Tucson, Arizona in the year 2006 resembles Tucson, Arizona in the year 1848. Hmm. That history is a circle, not a straight line. Within all this Canadian talk of multiculturalism, there is this unsettling fact that history is being restored, that the Indian is returning, albeit speaking Spanish. I met three young men some years ago of a group, an evangelical Protestant group called Victory Outreach in Tijuana, Mexico. 
They told me they were coming illegally to the United States of America to convert the United States of America to Protestantism. <laughs> and I thought to myself, history is a circle within a circle within a circle. And we f might find ourselves trapped if we don't have a roadmap within the labyrinth. Thanks very much. I think Netzler wanted to respond to something that. Ja, also ich finde, dass ähm, Multikulturalität in ähm, einer Gesellschaft eine Bereicherung sein kann, was es auch zum Beispiel für Deutschland sehr lange war. Seit 20, 30 Jahren ist, gibt es eine, eine äh, politische äh, äh, Denkweise, dass, dass gerade Multikulturalität was ganz Wichtiges ist für die Gesellschaft. Um, so I think that multiculturalism is a, can be an enhancement to a culture. And in Germany, for the last 20 or 30 years, there has been the sense that the, the diversity of cultures and multiculturalism is something that's essential and important for the state. Multikulturalität sollte uh, auch als Interkultur verstanden werden, dass man voneinander lernt. So multiculturalism should also be understood as an interculturalism, so that you learn from each other mm. as partners. Und so wurde auch in, de, äh, in den letzten Jahren auch ge, in der, äh, geforscht, also in, dass man Interkultur als Forschungsthema hatte. In so in the last uh, years, this has been the aim, to think of it as an interculturalism, to um, uh, research other aber cultures aber as part of an inter, um, intercultural exchange. Aber jetzt stellt sich heraus, dass Multikulturalität auch eine Herausforderung für eine Gesellschaft ist. Und zwar, solange es keinen gemeinschaftlichen Konsens gibt, was wir unter Kultur verstehen. Wenn Kultur Menschenrechtsverletzungen beinhalten, dann sollten wir einen Konsens haben, dass wir sagen, nein, das ist jetzt keine Kultur mehr. Das können wir nicht mehr tolerieren. So, but now multiculturalism has also become a challenge. And that is... Um it becomes a challenge when there's no consensus about what culture is. And um, if human rights are not being um, upheld by a culture, then there is a problem about this idea of intercultural exchange. Thank you. Um, one thing that struck me uh, in, in, the, in the balance of the sort of conversation so far is that uh, uh, there seem to be, we can focus on two different questions, two kinds of questions. One kind of question has to do with, as it were, the response of minorities to the fact of pluralism. Uh, the other, which we also talked about a bit, um, especially uh, Nejla and Pascal, was a question of, uh, either explicitly or implicitly, was a question of uh, what it is that makes minorities uh, close themselves off. Um, I mean, the, what Nejla Kelleck was talking about in Germany is in part a problem created for whatever reason now by a sense that uh, some of these uh, Turkish uh, German communities are closing themselves off uh, to, to the wider Germany. And clearly there's a similar sense of self-enclosure in some of the German, uh, some of the French uh, banlieue and so on. I'm wondering, from the point of view of the minority, of course, the story is, well, we closed ourselves off because you didn't open to us. And, and now you tell us 
because it's causing you a problem, uh, that we should be open. But if you'd been open when we first arrived, we wouldn't be closed off. Now, maybe it's not worth having this fight about the past, but the fact is, um, I think that is part of the background, and it is why um, there's a real challenge how to answer Pascal's question, which is how do we maintain this openness? It seems to me that, that um, talking, as I have, to European immigrants, particularly from the third world, um, their complaint against France and, and Britain and, um, and Germany is, is that they feel that these cultures are defined and, in some sense, finished. And it is their responsibility, therefore, to somehow to adjust to that, to that completed, completed culture, to try to become French, whatever that means, to try to become English, which is even more impossible. Um, <laughs> because no matter how well you speak the language, you, nev you never quite will be. Um, whereas the United States has the slight rhetorical advantage of, of having, since the late 19th century, accepted the immigrant as the archetypal figure within the country and seen within the incompletion of the immigrant's journey. That is, the immigrant comes to New York from, uh, from Ireland or from Poland and in the process of leaving the past behind and recreating an identity, that, 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 that renewal is, is crucial to the, um, to the American identity. The problem now is, however, as you have someone like Samuel P. Huntington at Harvard, who writes this grotesque book, which is, um, who are we? Um, indeed, who is he? Um, <laughs> who believes that we really are a kind of British colony and that uh, the American experience really has been defined by and determined by its European patrimony. And now that the United States is becoming a global culture, as indeed London is, as indeed Paris has become global cities, how much are we prepared to accept the, 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 the reconfiguration of our sense of ourselves as a national culture with these minority cultures? How much are we willing to change? How much are we willing to open the door? Yes, I think there is a major difference between uh, America and Europe, and uh, it is patriotism. And uh, when, um, when you, you, you speak of um, Afro-American, Mexican-American, Italo-American, the important word is American. Hmm. But you would never speak of Arabo-French or African-French for the moment, because in, in Europe, the nation in itself uh, th those not really exist anymore because we, we've have, we have had the 20th century wars between our nations, massacres, genocides, destructions, and today nobody dares to use the word motherland or fatherland or to use the word nation, even in political speech. I mean, uh, with, with very uh, subtle tones. And so when the migrants from North Africa or Sub-Saharan Africa come to France from Turkey, where do they come really? They come into a country where we speak French, but they come into a country which has lost uh, most of its prerogatives. And this is a situation in Europe. Um, countries that make Europe have lost their sovereignty, but in fact, uh, uh, Europe didn't gain any sovereignty. So we are standing now in a kind of historical in-between. So what is France exactly for a, for a foreigner coming from a Muslim country, for instance? It's first, and before all, a welfare state, because France, as 
many flows, especially in this moment, but it's a generous country. You have free healthcare, you have free schooling. Nobody will let you die in the street if, you, if you're ill, which is not the case of the States. And, um, but that's it. So, you know, those people come to France first because they say, well, well maybe we will get something from, uh, for, from the state. And the state is seen mainly not as a source of authority, but as, as a service provider. And it's very striking when you, 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 you travel in France, you see boards, here the state builds for you a highway, <laughs> here the state builds for you a bridge. And this tends to infantilize the French and also to arouse their anger because we always ask to ourselves, but what is the state doing? The state has to pay, but after all, we are the state. And so this is, this is one reason, and nobody can blame the migrants for choosing France for this precise reason, because we, the French, live like this for now um, quite a long time. But there is a second reason for which um, um, a Moroccan, an Algerian, uh, a Malian could choose France. It's because it's a free country. And you have many, especially women coming from uh, North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, we want to come to France because first we are a secure state, contrary to, the, to, 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 to America, and because whatever this country is, we still enjoy a certain freedom. In France, you have the right not to believe in any religion. You have the right not to belong to any church. And I think this is also an advantage. But um, to, 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 to continue what Mr. Rodriguez said just before, of course, in, in, in America, you have a force which, which, which we have lost. Just one small anecdote. In, in the 80s, I was a visiting professor in San Diego. And one of my Mexican students with whom I befriended asked me to come to his um, kind of citizenship ceremony. It was in, in, a, in a stadium in Los Angeles. There was a thousand people. Most of them were coming from uh, South and Central America. And they, they briefly pronounced a few, few words on, on the Constitution. <laughs> they raised their hand and they were American. And I said, oh my God, I wish France could be like this. Because what is the United States? It's a kind of huge washing machine into which you, you, <laughs> co you come from China, Korea, Mexico, San Salvador, and then suddenly you get out American. And, and that's a force. I mean, I really admire, I wish France could be like but this today. Pascal, there's an important historical question here, which is why France isn't like that. Because it was like that. I mean, it, France was created. Because the French don't believe in themselves anymore. Because the French are ashamed to proclaim themselves as a nation. I think that's the main reason. And what's the cause of that? Our history. You know, history of Europe is a history full of blood and fury. It's, it's, it's a series of uh, disaster and suicide. Uh, our German friends know that. We made peace uh, uh, with them after millions and millions of corpses and, 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 and dead people between us. So it leaves tra traces. And... Um, so you, you think that the sort of traditional conception of France as a place which through its education system created where? some... France yes. as a place which, through an education system, created uh, uh, universal but nevertheless uh, contentful citizenship. That is all gone. Nobody believes in that anymore. Well, you know, yes, it's, it's, it's not gone, but it's in crisis. 
and that public teaching in France now is being abandoned by most um, well-off people who put their, 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 their children in, uh, in private school, and that's, uh, that's really a problem. But I think this is the main difference between the United States and Europe. Okay. In the United States, you're still in some way proud of what you are, even if you have a lot, a lot to criticize. And, and Europe is retracted on its history, and um, uh, Europe is, is suffering of a kind of uh, fanatic modesty. <laughs> and, as a, and, and, and you know, yeah. many, many uh, migrants from Morocco, Algeria, say, but why are you not, not more authoritarian? Why are you so weak with those uh, the, uh, gangs of, of the suburbs? You should be uh, much more severe and stern. But, um, but I think this is, uh, this is our main handicap. Nesha Kellek, do you agree with that as an, I mean, do you think that what Pascal Bruckner just said about France is, is true of Germany to the same extent that there is no place for uh, patriotism or nationalism as a, as a German response to the problem of trying to live together? Yeah. Das ist so. Äh, als ich letztes Jahr in Amerika, in Chicago gefragt wurde, äh, ist Deutschland ihre Heimat? Das war übrigens das erste Mal so eine Frage für mich. Da habe ich gesagt, äh, wie kann Deutschland meine Heimat sein, wenn es nicht für die Deutschen ist? Ja, das ist so. Last year, when I went to Chicago, somebody um, asked me, is Germany your homeland or your home country? And um, I said, how could it be? Because if it's not even a homeland for the Germans, <laughs> even the Germans don't think that Germany is their homeland. Yeah, das ist also eine eine ganz wichtige Frage. So geht es eigentlich sehr sehr vielen Migranten, denen man ja auch sagt, ihr integriert euch nicht. Dann heißt es, wo sollen wir uns integrieren? Wo ist also die diese deutsche Gesellschaft, in der wir uns integrieren wollen? Aber die deutsche Gesellschaft ist ja nicht eins. Es gibt diesen hat den Patriotismus über überwunden, den Nationalismus vor allen Dingen überwunden. So, so the problem is for the immigrants, they arrive and they're being told you're not um, integrate yourself, you don't integrate yourselves. And, um, and they say, well, how, where should we integrate ourselves? Because we don't know where that is. Um, and so this is a problem of, of, of history that nationalism and patriotism doesn't exist anymore. I wonder, anymore. I mean, Richard, um, in the United States, it isn't the state that does this, is it? I mean, in a way, what we're talking about here is the fact that in, in Europe, as it were, the state used to serve the function of cultural integration, and now there's a kind of abandonment of that uh, because yeah. and a loss of confidence. But it was never the state here. No, it was, it was uh, there, is a, there is a sense in which the culture is, is manufactured and advertised by the marketplace, and that uh, children buy into that at, in various ways and at various stages and reconfigure that. Um, the, the, this notion of a phantom France or a phantom Germany is, is really quite interesting. And I, talking to the young people that I've spoken to in these cities, um, they really do believe that somehow there is a monolithic thing that they're, that they're, that's being withheld from them. Uh, whereas in the United States, if you talk to the immigrant children, um, there is a sense of, of mixture, but it's at a, a more complicated level. Two, two differences. One is that the, the country is so religious. This country is so religious. And most of the immigrants are coming in with a high degree of religiosity. Um, the problem is that, that um, you know, that the, the official culture now in, in Europe is secular, 
by which we do not mean simply neutral, but in many cases anti-religious, or at least unsympathetic to religion. Uh, in, this in this group, on, in, in meeting in these conferences that Penn has organized, I've only met one person who claims to have any religious affiliation or religious faith. And it's, uh, here we are talking about multiculturalism when we really belong to a kind of monoculture of atheists um, <laughs> from all over the world. And we, we, we recognize each other immediately. You know, we look at our labels and our, you know, he, he's wearing Prada and I'm wearing Versace. Or <laughs> <laughs> um, that there is this nationhood that we, we inhabit. But the, the difficulty, I think, in the United States uh, for immigrants is that, and I don't know whether this is comparable to France, but, um, but we got the pronoun from you at the first person singular pronoun, the I. We got it from the French Enlightenment. And um, it is, it, we, we perhaps have taken it farther than any other country has dared take it. We raise our children to leave home in this country. And um, the enormous loneliness of immigrants in this country uh, who have to leave behind their, the culture, the ancient cultures, the familial cultures of we, nosotros, and the struggle within that, the, 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 the American disdain for the, the immigrant child who does not participate in the Americanization process as quickly as we want him to, by which we mean he does not become an I as quickly as we expect him to. He does not become Huckleberry Finn as quickly as we expect him to. This struggle, which in, is in, in Europe is becoming increasingly a religious struggle between religions of the we and a secular state that is defined by individual rights, is, I think, enormously dangerous. It doesn't have the, ex the, the, the exact equivalent here in the United States. I wonder if we ought now, having identified uh, enough insoluble problems, <laughs> <laughs> to, invite, to invite the wise members of the audience who have questions to ask uh, to come up and uh, to, to one or other of the microphones, because uh, we won't hear you unless you do, um, and uh, to join the conversation. Yes, ma'am. I have a, a question for all of us, I think, is how can we learn to listen to each other if we don't, by and large, at least in this country, speak each other's languages? And how can we change that? That's one of the things that always impresses me about uh, the European conversation. There may be insecurity and in, 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 uh, a sense of having been left behind by history, but there's no unwillingness to learn to speak as many languages as there are people you meet. And that, we just don't do that here. We don't teach it, we don't encourage it. We require our immigrants to become monolingual. And I, I think as, you know, as readers and writers, uh, we therefore don't know how, what the rest of the world says to each other. Um, and I you know, hope that it's something that Penn can continue to change. Uh, right, because so, I mean, part of the point, from Penn's point of view, of this sort of international festival is to uh, make available uh, a wider appreciation in this country of writers and writing from elsewhere who don't perhaps very easily get, get audience. And I, I, I'm just saying because you translate for us, because Penn's translates for us, and I think we, we have to constantly uh, lobby uh, to provide for more uh, people who can translate for themselves. Thank you. 
Uh, Richard, do you think of us as a, as a uh, we're both American citizens? Do, do, are we? Um, I, I think that there is. I'm happy uh, with languages. I mean, the, 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 the anxiety that you're referring to is an anxiety that gets developed as the country opens itself up to foreign immigration in the 19th century. Uh, that the one thing that holds us together as, as people of, a, of this country is some al alliance to this tongue. Um, and and I, th I think there is some value in that idea. That is, I think that this, the, to be careless with that, to be careless with the, uh, about the public language we speak, uh, I think it can be very dangerous. I, it is now possible to live in the United States without ever learning English. Uh, uh, you can watch television, you can listen to the radio, you can listen to politicians, including the president, who speaks a better Spanish than he does in English. Um, <laughs> Not hard. You can, you, can, you can go to church, you can, uh, you, can, you can get married, you can propose to your girlfriend, you can go to a hospital, everything done in Spanish. I, I don't know whether that's an advantage to immigrant uh, uh, working class populations. In some way, I would like to argue that that is not an advantage. The participation in the tongue is, is the advantage. Um, and I, I, with H.L. Mencken, would like to describe the language that I'm using now as American, um, rather than English. But by which I mean it's a language that got uh, redeveloped or reformed by generations of immigrants. There are German words, Yiddish words, Italian words, thousands of Spanish words on my tongue. and. Um, the, the language that I speak as an American is, a, is in fact, a multitude of languages. Um, can, uh, we're, we're piling people up here. And, uh, can we try the other microphone now? Yeah, I was particularly interested in what Pascal was talking about, about potentially the trap of uh, culture. Because it seems to me that when there's a motivation that nothing can universalize us, and everything is about difference and separateness and otherness. It seems to me that the kind of discourse of multiculturalism can end up creating the very thing it aims not to achieve, which is that we none of us can understand one another because of our difference and our separateness. But my real question to the panel is, um, I think that I disagree with, with the point about um, America having more confidence in itself than Europe. And I think that what we're experiencing is a kind of self-loathing, mm -hmm. where we, in the past, there was this real buoyant um, vision about what it meant to be American, even if it was only in the terms of negative against, during the Cold War, against something else. So being American was about not being red and not being communist, it was about freedom. But it seems today when people say, why do people hate America? this sense of which it's really about dead white men, this view of like uh, 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 raping and pillaging of the past, amalgamating in the idea of being American, that there's a real embarrassment about it. So when people become hyphenated Americans, uh, that the, the elite in America cannot motivate and mobilize a positive vision of themselves. And I wonder what the panel think about that. Whether you're American or confident. So he's disputing the, the, the thought that the United States has a kind of uh, self-confidence, national self-confidence, um, which can be used to um, respond to, to incomers. He's suggesting that the United States has lost that sense of confidence and that there's a lot of um, sort of cultural self-criticism. Do, do you think that's... If you're, if you're asking about, you know, the, uh, the designs of Walmart and Coca-Cola, I don't think the American enterprise has lost its self-confidence. But if you're asking about the foreign policy of people like Rumsfeld and Cheney, 
I think that there is a sense in which the country is, is without direction. Um, the, the American enterprise seems to be quite powerful in the world. I mean, one travels in Africa and hears hip hop everywhere. Um, one, one um, evangelicals have moved into Latin America at such a rate from the United States that they have converted Latin America and are converting it at the rate at which by the year 2070, Latin America will probably be in its majority evangelical Protestant. Um, th this American enterprise is, is, is quite fierce and, um, <laughs> and we already live in a century, at this part of the century, at a time in which the Mormon church, for example, uh, the homegrown cowboy Christianity has become in its majority Latin American. Um, that didn't happen by accident. Yes, maybe uh, America is going through a crisis today because of the war in Iraq and, and the misdeed of the Bush administration. But um, I don't think this, this means a loss of confidence because when you arrive in New York or in, to any city in America, you, you're struck by the energy, by the, din the dynamism of everyone. And um, there is no collective despair, despair or collective depression as you can find today in France or in uh, some other European countries. And uh, I think you, you will overcome this crisis because Bush one day will disappear and we'll have another <laughs> government. And um, uh, America still has a capability of overcoming its, its errors and its, and, its, uh, and its faults. And the fact that the Americans are hated everywhere <laughs> just, just proves that you matter. You matter to people. <laughs> they hate you, but you exist. And the mild sympathy which Europe enjoys everywhere just proves <laughs> that we finished. <laughs> Sir. I would like to question the other uh, side of what you referred to as the phantom culture in Europe, uh, the sense in which there's a, an issue now because of a loss of sense of patriotism in France or Germany. It's not as if prior to that, there was this great openness and a great uh, assimilationist opportunity. And, and I actually would question an earlier phase in what you were saying, Pascal, in the history of the Enlightenment as belief in reason transcending race. The Enlightenment invented race as, as a table to organize the peoples of the world, um, after which you had a romantic box that was put in about, you know, uh, language and culture, et cetera. But so I guess I, it, it, doesn't it doesn't add up to me that Europe at one time had a way to deal with, with outsiders and lost that after the Second World War. I think it, it, this has always been a problem of, of what to deal with minorities or those who don't fit in, which is part of why you had all those tragedies in the 20th century. Well, I think, yes. France has become a land of immigration since the end of the 19th century. But before being a, a land of uh, immigrants, uh, France uh, had to make its own citizens French people because uh, you have to remember that 100 years ago, French language was not spoken everywhere. People spoke dialects, and so now they rediscover the dialect of the regions. And uh, they had no notion of what, of what the central power was. And um, that's, that's why France is, in, in Europe, much before England, a land of immigration. And um, the, the, the contact between the outsiders and the French has always been extremely violent. 
1981, there was a riot in Marseille between Italians and French people for some obscure and minor reason. Uh, there was, uh, I think, 10 or 20 people died, and there was a deep resentment among the Italian community. And, and for each wave of immigrants, there has, there has been um, a clash with, with, the, with the, the, the French, French uh, native citizens. And but, if we... But, but nevertheless, Italians, uh, French people of Italian origin are now French. surely yes. fully French. I mean, so there, was this, there were these crises in the transition, but um, you, you watch a French movie, you see an Italian name in the in the. Uh, yes. You have no idea who it was because they don't seem very different from anybody else's. Yes, yes but yes, but um, uh, Arab immigration is also working in France. In we have sense. had Arab immigrants for now uh, almost a century, and I think it's 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 on one hand it's it's a chance also to have. Uh, you, you said in your presentation that we had five million Muslims in France. I don't think these, these um, figures are correct. Because um, among those five million Muslims, how many people do not believe in any, in, in any God? How many don't go to the mosque on Friday? How many don't care about uh, religion, as you right. said? And um, I think we have in Europe a chance. It's, it's to promote and to build a secular Islam. And of course, it will be a very long-term process. Uh, it will, it, there will be setbacks, there will be uh, victories and defeats. There will be a strong reaction from Muslim fundamentalists, which we already see today. So there might be a lot of bomb attacks also. But I think in, in, in this regard, France seems to me uh, in, in a better shape than its, its neighbors in Europe because we have this idea of, uh, of secularism. You can practice your religion, but in private, in your family. And because the French consider, uh, well, in principle, that every man is equal, every man is equal to every other man. Uh, and we, so I could mention the, the, um, uh, the Islamist scarf in France or other, other, um, other things like this, but I think it's a, it's a very, uh, challenging issue. Shall we succeed in integrating five million Muslims and in transforming Islam in a, in, in, in a religion like any other religion as, as we did with Catholicism? And, and we, had, uh, we had centuries of, of uh, very hard battles with the Catholic Church as you also have in, 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 uh, in South America. Yes. Or shall we fail? If we fail, it will be a disaster. But if we succeed, it will be something very important. This is why I think the, the whole model of, of the mestizaje, the, the merging of cultures, is probably the more modern uh, notion rather than multiculturalism. Uh, a, a secular Islam is, is, if nothing, as complicated as an, an idea as an Indian, Indian conquistador. Also ich bin, äh, ich bin nicht so äh, optimistisch, dass äh, zum Beispiel, was die USA angeht, dass das so leicht äh, die Integration verlaufen wird, wie äh, vielleicht Anfang des letzten Jahrhunderts. Das glaube ich nicht. I'm, I'm not so confident and so optimistic that all this will be so, um, such an easy process of integration and that it could be so successful. Das wird also nicht von sich aus äh, kommen und genau das, äh, diese Entwicklung sehe ich auch für Europa, wenn nicht aktiv für die Integration und zwar für eine gemeinsame Werte, Werte, was getan wird von der Gesellschaft aus, wird es nicht von alleine passieren. Um, 
there has to be, and this is the case both for the US and for Europe, there has to be an active push for integration and we have to actively do something to create that. It's not just going to happen eventually. Es ist nicht so, dass die Menschen irgendwo hinkommen und, und von dem neuen Land was haben wollen, sondern sie bringen ihre Kultur mit und wollen ihre Kultur dort aufrechterhalten. Das hat sich geändert gegenüber früher. It's not just that people arrive and they want to get something from the new culture, they bring their own culture and they want to maintain that and that is different from what it used to be. Und die aufnehmenden Länder verlangen das sogar. Sie wollen gar nicht mehr, dass die Menschen sich anpassen, sondern sagen, oh, behaltet ihre, eure Kultur, das ist was Tolles. Und das ist das Neue und Andere als das letzte Jahrhundert. So, and the countries that receive these immigrants, they don't even want you to assimilate, they also, they ask you to keep your culture and they say, we want you to be different. And und die Menschen, die, die sich auf den Weg machen, müssen sich überhaupt nicht mehr ändern und werden aber die Verlierer sein. Weil, wenn ich die Sprache des Landes nicht sprechen kann, kann ich an der Bildung nicht teilnehmen. Wenn ich an der Bildung nicht teilnehmen kann, kann ich an der gesellschaftlichen Auseinandersetzung mich nicht beteiligen. Dadurch werde ich immer Außenseiter bleiben. If I can't speak the language of the culture that I'm in, then I won't be able to participate in the educational process or in the public life. So I will always remain an outsider. Um, we can take one more question, I think. Actually, my question follows very nicely from what you just said. I, I wanted to go back to whoever had spoken about the idea of the uh, when you referred to Samuel Huntington. And a bit louder, please. When you referred to Samuel Huntington and yes. um, the sense of, I don't know, preserving Western culture, whatever, whatever that was about, and, um, and, and the overtones of colonialism, which were there, which um, what I hear a lot these days is people talking about the Anglosphere, which might be a similar idea that the countries that have the tradition of the Enlightenment or specifically um, the kind of constitutional government that derived from the Magna Carta and was exported all over the world via colonialism, but it was mainly the English-speaking countries, that those countries should ally with each other to preserve their culture. And I, w I, I wanted to pull back from that and look at what's actually in there that I think is valuable, which is that to have a society that has a separation of religion and state, that has individual rights, that has a bill of rights, um, that, uh, it, that many people want because they, they come here for that or they come to Europe and especially the women, you know, who want to be able to live apart, you know, to, to have a place to go into away from a, a home culture that might be repressing them. I'm okay, that in order for that to continue, it has to have a certain critical mass. And it, doesn't, it isn't about what race you are, it's about if, if a whole bunch of people come into your country faster than you can teach them about that, you can get swamped, and then it might not continue. It's, it's a robust society, but it's also fragile in some ways. You have to have a certain number of people who understand <laughs> what the Bill of Rights is, so, you know. So I, I, think, so I think the, the core issue for us to respond to is about 
uh, insisting on the value of uh, some kind of assimilative aim, some insisting that all of us, both, uh, both in Europe and in the United States, I think, uh, need to identify the things that I, I agree with that, and if you're particularly referring to the issues here in the United States having to do with illegal immigration, I just remind you, though, that it, what we're watching is in some odd way a reversal of roles, that the Christians are coming to the United States, that they are bringing work habits that are quite terrifying <laughs> to large portions of the United States, um, and that they, they also believe in families, uh, something that Americans no longer believe in. They may, in fact, be reestablishing a culture which we, in our secular bliss, have, uh, have given up. One other thing, it's just that since we didn't talk about eroticism very much today, um, that there is this negative birth rate in Europe, which no one remarks on, but Europe is disappearing. And um, I have a very good friend who has a jewelry shop on the Place Vendôme, and every time I ask him if he has any children, he laughs at me and he says, no, that is, he just bought a new car, he says. Um, <laughs> yes, with the exception of France. <laughs> I, I would like to defend my country. France <laughs> has, has the highest fertility rate in, in Europe, 1.9. <laughs> and, and, and it's a very good sign. We, we totally despair, but we have this little light in the dark. But is it not fertility. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And, is it not a consequence in part of, of state policy? That, I mean, yes, 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 because the state so, is so paying for kindergarten. And, so and maybe we should, we yes. should remember that there maybe is still a French state. Maybe you should inspire state. Yourself, yourself of that. But it's not entscheidend, Kinder to bekommen. It's entscheidend dass diese Kinder in einer Welt leben, die für sie auch Qualität hat. Aber es ist nicht wichtig, nur Kinder zu haben. Es ist auch wichtig, Kinder in einer Welt zu haben, die eine Qualität hat, die wert zu leben ist. Also, danke sehr. Ich möchte unser Panel sehr bedanken. Ich möchte unsere Audience sehr bedanken. Ich möchte die New York Public Library bedanken. Ich möchte die Sinandzeit.com und euch zu gehen. Und ich möchte auch, als Mitglied des Pan-American Center, to uh, thank uh, Penn for providing the occasion, uh, both here and in the rest of the festival, which I hope you'll enjoy. Please pick stuff up as you go out the door. Thanks for coming, and thank you thank all Thank you very much. much. For any of the people who have tickets for the next event, you may stay here. Ticket holders will come and pick up your tickets. <laughs>